Right, hello everybody, um, and welcome uh, to okay. the LSE, especially if you haven't been here uh, uh, before. Um, uh, I'm Murray Lowe, I'm Associate Professor of Human Geography in uh, the Department of Geography and Environment uh, here, and I'll be chairing this evening's event. I'm delighted to be able to welcome David Harvey uh, back to the school after his previous visit just last April. Uh, the occasion here this time, though, is really special, as he's with us to be awarded an honorary degree from the school next Wednesday, reflecting the importance and influences contributions over the decades to uh, geography as a discipline and to the work of scholars in other disciplines. The LSE website indicates there have only been 26 people to whom the school has given honorary degrees. I think this testifies to the importance of David's work and the reach of his audience globally. Professor David Harvey is Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Geography at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. His PhD was from Cambridge in 1961, and since then he has taught at the University of Bristol, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Oxford University, and he has held his current position in New York since 2001. Around the turn of the present century, he was a Miliband Fellow here at the school for several years. His early work and his impressive first book, Explanation in Geography, from 1969, was orientated by a more general movement in the discipline, away from a rich and detailed analysis of regional variations in human and natural configurations across the globe to a perspective based on the idea that geography should emulate the procedures of the natural sciences. Much of the work at this time, and in this vein subsequently, involved the development of mathematical and statistical models and aimed at general accounts of the spatial organization of the world. In many ways, this was a radical break with geography's past. Although David moved on from this style of geography rapidly in the early 1970s, at least two of its dimensions have marked his writing ever since, and the research and writing of those, and there are many, who have been influenced by it. Firstly, explanation in geography concluded with the call for geography to become a theoretical discipline, which it remains in almost a bewildering variety of ways. And secondly, the focus on the spatial organization of the world has endured as perhaps first among equals in geography's core concerns. Particularly on moving to the United States, David's work moved through a critique of liberal political philosophy and ideas about the politics of distribution towards a much more radical set of positions influenced by Marxism. In 1973, amid signs that others in geography were moving in similar directions, social justice and the city crystallized the dissatisfactions with objective scientific modes of analysis in geography by proposing an agenda and set of tools that looked and felt radically different, more engaged with inequality and injustice, much more clearly political in its implications. Limits to Capital in 1982, a product of years of studying Marx and the literatures around his work, 
is a remarkably impressive reconstruction of Marxist thinking, critical examination of debates around aspects of his work that others have found problematic, and an extension of it in the direction of constructing a historical geographic materialism. In the 1980s and 1990s, his work diversified to consider, amongst other things, postmodernism in architecture, urbanism, and culture, and themes regarding nature and environmental justice. He also did some really arresting work on the historical geography of Paris. This century, he is perhaps best known for his analysis of post-9-11 geopolitics in the New Imperialism from 2003, and his very widely read Brief History of Neoliberalism from 2005. In 2012, his Rebel Cities sought to address themes central to post-crisis activisms in many global contexts, in particular developing his interpretation of Henri Lefebvre's concept of the right to the city. He is indefatigable in continuing to gauge with Marx's core conceptual material, as we heard last year when he was here to talk about his new book, 17 Contradictions and the End of Capitalism. His personal website must be one of the most clicked on in the social sciences, containing as it does so many resources related to Marx's work and David's interpretation of its themes. I could go on, but I won't. The format for this event is a bit different from previous occasions that we've welcomed David here. Uh, instead of a talk, we have a panel. So we'll have a few questions, each taking around 10 minutes for David from our distinguished panelists here, and that will be followed by some questions, I hope, uh, from the audience. So I need to introduce our panelists this evening as well. Professor Michael Storper, uh, who is a multi-locational expert on, among other things, location. <laughs> He's professor of economic geography at LSE, but he also holds professorships at Sciences Po in Paris and at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's had a distinguished career in economic and urban geography, focusing in particular on themes concerning urban and regional growth and development, processes of agglomeration, production and innovation, and the geography of firms. His two most recent books are Keys to the City from 2013, which develops towards a discussion of geography and justice, and The Rise and Fall of Urban Economies, which was just published this year. Professor Jane Wills is Professor of Human Geography at Queen Mary University of London. She's worked over the years on migrants, uh, migrant labor, uh, workers' rights, workers' organization, work councils, and is well known for her work on living wages in London and elsewhere, and for her engagement with activists in this area. Her most recent books are Threads of Labor, Garment Industry Supply Chains from the Workers' Perspective, from 2005, and Global Cities at Work, New Migrant Divisions of Labor, from 2010. Now, I need to say some slightly boring things uh, before we get on with the uh, 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 discussion. This event's being 
recorded. We were unclear, actually, whether it's just sound or, or visuals, but uh, we'll see what happens. And is likely, I'm only allowed to say that it is likely, that it will be released in the form of a podcast in one to two working days. Do check the LSE website for details. Please turn your mobile phones and devices to silent. You don't need to turn them off, because obviously the school wants you to tweet, should you feel <laughs> like you want to tweet. The suggested Twitter hashtag for this event is hash LSE Harvey, all one word. I was reading the notes on this earlier, and it tells me I'm supposed to tell you about fire assembly points. <laughs> so, in the unlikely event of a fire, uh, there is an assembly point by uh, the Saw Swee Hook Student Centre, if most of you even really know quite uh, where that is. Uh, but at least that's a space where there are two pubs uh, in close <laughs> proximity. So if our event gets spoiled by fire or similar, at least you'll have a fun night. <laughs> right, well, you know, I have an opening question for David, which hopefully will um, uh, provide a gentle introduction, but also help him introduce himself uh, uh, to you. Uh, this session tonight is called The Power of Ideas. It's not a very materialistic title. Um, so I'm sorry, David, it's not mine, um, but I will use it for our first question. What makes an idea powerful? What are maybe the two or three ideas you have explored that you still find most powerful? And secondly, and maybe more difficult, are there any that you have spent time on, maybe especially after the shift to Marxism, that in retrospect seem less compelling to you than they did at the time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Go for but it. Don't take uh, any longer than ten minutes, otherwise. Uh, uh, that's uh, pretty hard uh, uh, to deal with. Um, <laughs> but what I would, would say, I think, uh, as an introduction to it, is that... Um, there are, <clears throat> in the books and various things I've written, uh, some central themes uh, which I think, uh, from which I've drawn some very important ideas. And uh, Marx did comment that ideas uh, can be a material force in history and uh, my regret, deepest regret, if you want to take one answer to one of your questions, is that uh, these really good ideas have not actually become a material force for historical change. I wish they had, uh, but uh, they have not. And that's, a, if you like, a, a confession of uh, failure. Um, the two uh, angles that I would want to take on this, uh, I think, uh, really comes from the, the two books that are, were most important to me in terms of what I valued doing. And the first book was Limits to Capital, and the second is the Paris study, which first came out in 1985 and then came out in book form uh, in 2005. Um, by the way, I was uh, uh, very saddened to hear that the French translator of the Paris book was killed. 
in the uh, attack on the theater in Paris. Um, he did a fantastic job of overseeing the French translation and brought it to the French public in a very, very uh, important uh, way. Um, but those two books, actually, initially I had the idea I wanted to have just as one book. They were meant to be one. But I, and I wanted to create, if you like, uh, an understanding of urbanization on the basis of Marxian categories and theories. I realized I didn't understand Marx very well, so I had to go off and, and really sort that out. Uh, and I did that in writing Limits to, to Capital. But that was such a long book in itself that I couldn't integrate the urban stuff uh, in, into it. Uh, but the, the reason I mention this is because in that project, it became terribly important for me to work on certain aspects of Marx's theorizing that uh, at the time uh, were much neglected and if uh, not totally ignored. Uh, you can't write about urbanization without writing uh, about things like uh, finance capital. You can't write about urbanization without talking about land and land rent. You can't talk about it without talking about the powers of merchant capital. So all of those chapters in Marx and the many accounts of Marx which are totally ignored in the literature became very fundamental to what it was that I was looking for uh, in Marx. And then, of course, for me, the question of the spatial organization and the production of space and so on became a very important issue, uh, even before Lefebvre had written about it. Uh, so, so integrating all of that uh, into the Marxian theory was, uh, for me, uh, a very important aspect of my reading of Marx. So the project of working on urbanization actually affected my reading of Marx uh, to the point where uh, I think the reading of Marx has always been... Uh, not very scholarly or, or uh, authoritative in the usual sense you'd use the word. I find it very surprising when I'm sometimes described as an authority on Marx. I don't regard myself as an authority. Um, I'm just a person who's learned to use his categories, I think, in a foundational and very interesting way and to interpret those categories against the background of the question, what do these categories help me understand about urbanization processes and uneven geographical development at a variety of scales? And it was putting those two things together that made me read Marx in a particular kind of way, which is rather different, I think, from other perspectives. And that made Limits to Capital a rather special book in the sense that it had a lot about fixed capital formation in the built environment. It had a lot of stuff uh, about finance and, and development and also, of course, about the production of space, which most other accounts of, of Marx uh, ignored. At the same token, uh, reading Marx that way led me to reinterpret a lot of what I was reading in terms of urban theory. Uh, but I wanted it not simply to be about urban theory, but also to try to create a rather rich account of urbanization. And originally, I thought to do this on the city I was living in, in Baltimore, and that had a very important impact on, of course, living there and, 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 and working there for many years. Uh, but it happened that I went to Paris uh, in 1976 and spent uh, some time there, and I got fascinated by Sacre-Cœur, and then suddenly I was into, okay, what happened in Second Empire, Paris, 
Uh, and, and then I suddenly realized uh, years later that really what I was doing was connecting the dots between Marx's account of 1848 and, 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 and uh, with, with the, the Paris Commune. And the Paris Commune, I think, had a very big impact on me, as I think it did on Marx. I don't think people quite understand to what degree Marx changed his perspective. Uh, He approached the Paris Commune when it broke out from a very scientific perspective, and from a very scientific perspective, basically said, don't try and make a revolution now. The conditions are not right, they're not there, or this kind of thing. But when it started, he changed his perspective and said, okay, it started, let's go for it. Let's storm the gates of heaven, as he calls it. And, 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 and actually, in that sense, he became much more spontaneous about, uh, and, 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 and departed, I think, from this rather scientistic uh, kind of view that had held him back from embracing the idea of going for a revolutionary transformation uh, before the commune started. And I think there's that reading of Marx, which, is, which is kind of attempts to be very scientific, versus what I would call a much more uh, radical... Uh, and, and, and spontaneous uh, reading uh, and his capacity, I think, to, to adjust uh, what he was doing to the political circumstances of the, of, of the time, which I uh, learned to appreciate very much in the kind of work that I was doing. And this, of course, led me in subsequent work not to confine myself to uh, the strict uh, economism of political economy, but to try to look at questions of cultural change, uh, try to look at uh, all sorts of uh, other aspects, the integration of the relation to nature, the transformation of social relations, the transformation of knowledge, structures, and, and all the rest of it, uh, and the, which has been foundational to the work uh, that has gone on ever since. So... If you really want to grapple with uh, the way I, I tend to think, it would be look at those two things and then you'll see all of the techniques being used in everything from neoliberalism to the 17 contradictions. Uh, so so that, that is, if you like, where uh, I, I, I was coming from. Uh, in, in coming at it, of course, uh, also I was uh, very much... Uh, concerned with, well, what kind of, uh, what kind of understanding uh, am I taking from Marx? And more and more over time, I found myself less and less impressed by the specific propositions that he comes up with and more and more impressed with his method of inquiry and following his method of, of investigation. And I think that uh, when you read him very carefully and watch him thinking, uh, you suddenly get a, a very kind of... A uh, very definite sense of uh, of a way of, of of approaching raw materials, which is uh, dialectical, uh, in, relational, uh, dynamic, uh, very much process based rather than thing based, and is actually very open. And it always struck me as very uh, irritating when I kind of find people referring to Marx as somebody who had a closed mind and that his system is closed. It seems to me it's perpetually open and it's constantly opening doors. It doesn't do it in a casual kind of way. It kind of arrives at a point and does deep consideration and then says, we've got to open this door, we've got to look through it and go further in it. And it's that experimental kind of perpetual exploration of the world that I, I found uh, most, most fascinating about Marx and I, I found myself trying to emulate it. Uh, as, as, as much as I could. And that methodology uh, and method, uh, of inquiry, uh, like I suggested, was pretty foundational to uh, all of the work which I, I, I subsequently uh, engaged with. And I would hope that if I could teach uh, you anything, it would be to teach you that method of inquiry. 
and some of that uh, came out uh, with what the last part of uh, my work has been involved in what something I call the Marx Project, which was partly based on the annoyance of the misrepresentations of Marx, uh, and misrepresentations not simply from the right wing, but also uh, by many Marxists, and uh, certainly what I would call the dogmatic Marxists. And so I was trying uh, to figure a way to do this, and uh, when I arrived in New York, I was uh, very lucky to find a very talented group of uh, graduate students uh, who, seeing the interest there was in the course that I was giving on Marx's capital, said basically, well, let, we'll put it on the web. And I said, I have no idea how to do that. And they kind of said, don't worry about it, we'll do it. And they did, and they've done it ever since. And you'll be surprised to know that I, I can't even get on my own tweet. I, can't, I, don't know, I don't know how to do it. They do it for me, you see, and I'm completely helpless in this kind of technological sort, sort, sort of world. Um, but but uh, doing the lectures and putting them online of Marx's capital was a phenomenal experience. I, I really didn't think there would be much take-up on it, but there's been a quite phenomenal uh, response uh, to it and of course it led to the two companions on Marx's capital and it led me also to say well you don't only want to sort of have the companions to Marx's capital but you want to see this stuff in action uh, how it helps you interpret the world and that's why I found myself writing books like The New Imperialism, The Brief History of Neoliberalism, The Enigma of Capital and The Rebel Cities Book and, 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 and the like. So there is a continuity here uh, and, and an evolution and uh, what I've been doing and why I, I have been doing it. And, and of course, uh, one of the things that happens is that you frequently find yourself uh, trying to integrate into what you're, what you, what, what you're doing uh, other strains of thought. Uh, all along, uh, for example, being a geographer, I've always been impressed with the sort of radical tradition in geography, which has been anarchist, uh, Reclus and Kropotkin uh, in, in particular, both of whom were geographers. And, and I've always had a certain respect for it, and I always thought they handled things in some ways better than the Marxists when it came to certain issues, other issues they didn't handle so well. And I was, I was very impressed with uh, Murray Bookchin's recent book in which he kind of says, you know, the only hope for the left in the future is if they can put the best of anarchism and the best of, of Marxism together, then they will get somewhere. And in and, and a curious kind of way, Marx himself was sort of half doing that in his response to the Paris Commune. Uh, he became much more anarchistic in his approach uh, once the thing broke out. And then, of course, afterwards he regretted it, and that's when he went after Bakunin and, the, and all this nasty stuff started, which is sometimes, you know, sort of uh, somewhat e egotistical uh, kind of uh, fights and, 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 and squabbles. But I still think that there are many things that uh, Marxists have not handled very well, which are much better handled in the anarchist tradition. That includes things like the approach to uh, natural environmental questions, the approach even to urbanization, because uh, if you're interested in urban planning, then there's this link between Kropotkin and Patrick Geddes and Lewis Mumford and right the way through to Bookchin and all the rest of it, which, which is actually a very fertile uh, tradition uh, which, which has, derives more from anarchism than it does from Marxism. And in many ways, I've been playing around with trying to, to, to integrate uh, some of these. But, of course, it's very difficult to do because uh, when, you know, I, when I try to engage a bit with the anarchists, it's, it's really quite, 
uh, quite exciting. Well, speaking <laughs> of. Speaking of, uh, yes. So I'm going to stop about here because he's going to shut me up anyway. So, <laughs> so uh, but, but uh, I think that, that uh, we have to open, open doors. And, and, and right now, I think uh, the doors we open are, 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 are very critical. But we just don't open any old doors. I mean, uh, Donald Trump has tried to open doors. And, uh, I just wish he'd fall through them, you know. But, 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 but the, thing, the thing is, that we, we, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the world right now, which is, in my view, totally insane. And that leads me to, I think, a certain political positions, which I'm sure we we'll get into in the middle of the discussion. Okay, thanks. Thank you, David. Uh, well, speaking of anarchism, I know Jane has written about uh, the anarchist uh, tradition uh, uh, in geography. So um, I know you want to ask about politics, yeah. Jane. Uh, David so set me up very well. Yeah, he has, yeah. Um, because my question is about politics. And with hindsight, I went to study for a degree in geography at something that actually was a special moment, although when you're an undergraduate, you go to the library and you find books and you think they're completely normal. So I went to university in 1983, a year after David had published Limits to Capital, at a time when Marxism was in the ascendancy. And it's probably very hard (laughs) for many of you to imagine this, but Marxism was the new frontier, um, in a way that then was replaced, post-structuralism replaced it, and I'm not sure what the next thing is at the present period of time, but Marxism was where the action was in geography uh, when I went to study in 1983, and I went to the library and I found a book called Radical Geography and assumed that this was a really normal thing to find in the library about a whole discipline thinking about how it could use its ideas to engage in the world. So I read this book and I wanted to connect the ideas I was learning in the classroom to the world outside. And it seemed as though there was a whole movement of people in my discipline and in the academy who are trying to do this. So imagine an 18-year-old, I was just turned 18 when I went to university, from rural Norfolk, reading David's Social Justice in the City about the need for a social revolution. And these are some of the words that I read at that time. The old structure of industrial capitalism, once such a force for revolutionary change in society, now appears as a stumbling block. Cities, those workshops of civilization, are founded upon the exploitation of the many by the few. A genuinely humanizing urbanism has yet to be brought into being, which David just talked about this. It remains for revolutionary theory to chart the path from an urbanism based in exploitation to an urbanism appropriate for the human species, and it remains for revolutionary practice to accomplish such a transformation. So obviously this was a big thing for an 18-year-old to think that they wanted to do. I wanted to be a Marxist geographer, (laughs) and I wanted to become a radical geographer, and I had to get to grips with a whole new lexicon, which again I thought was normal in the academy, but this was new for a lot of people in the academy at the time. I had to learn about things like class struggle, base and superstructure, historical materialism, false consciousness, even the labor theory of value. Now I remember trying to get my head around the labor theory of value. This lexicon, this language, which of course is something we now associate with post-structuralism, allowed me to see the world in a completely different way. And that is the power of ideas. Literally, ideas can mean that you see something that you didn't see before. And you can get the sense that David did that when he read Marx. He could see geography and see the geography of capitalism and historical materialism in a completely different way. Um, so it was, it was very, very transformatory for me. But what I want to ask David about is the bit at the end of that quote 
where he says that what we need is revolutionary practice. Because Marx, of course, was all about understanding the world in order to change it, and that's what excited me about it. And geography is a very practical discipline. We've got a long history of, of being a, an applied discipline, of applying our ideas, and that's what I always liked about the subject. So my question for, for David is probably a bit difficult, but it's what does he think about the old model of Marxist politics? Because when I left that university in 1986, it was about building a vanguard party organizing a working class, shifting their false consciousness, and planning a social revolution. And at the time, just to kind of give me a bit of credit here, the minor strike was going on, so you could watch the television and see this thing called the class struggle. You could literally see it. There were police fighting pickets. It was on the news every single night. It went on for a year. It did feel as though the class struggle actually meant something. Um, so my question for David is, what, what about that model of politics in today's world? Uh, what is the Marxist model for political change? And if there's time, um, what is the role of academics and universities in that process? Because going back to no the 1980s, it seemed as though we were part of that process of, of struggle and organisation. And a lot has happened in the university in the intervening period. So what, where does that leave the academic uh, in fostering change? That's quite a lot. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, I feel like I'm, in my, I'm doing a PhD orals or something. <laughs> um, look, uh, politics is always, for me, uh, uh, contingent on the situation that you find yourself in. And... Obviously, there's different possibilities of politics at different historical and geographical moments. And uh, the historical geographical moment where you encountered this was had a very specific uh, quality to it. We're now, I think, in a very different uh, historical political moment. And part of that is, uh, of course, because of the dynamic of capital transformation that has occurred. Um, and let me just point out something, that during the 1970s and 1980s, the left was, was essentially fighting uh, a rearguard action against uh, the transformations of uh, employment structures that were occurring through what we now call deindustrialization. And that uh, the loss, the steady loss and erosion of manufacturing jobs, the eventually the closure of the mines and, and, and all those sorts of things, uh, was radically transforming the nature of uh, the working class. Uh, when I went to Baltimore in 1969, uh, there was a, a steel plant there that employed, I've forgotten exactly how many, something like 30, 37,000 people. Uh, was one of the major steel works in the United States. By the time you get to 1990, it's employing 5,000 people. And by the time you get to 2000, it's basically closed, actually it keeps on closing and opening up again under, you know, strange. If you wanted to get anything done politically in Baltimore in 1970, you go to the steel workers' union and you start talking to the, the head of the steel workers. And if you get the steel workers on your side, you pretty much would, were home and dry, you know, because then they would work with the other. So this was the possibility of politics at the time. Uh, by 1990, 
who did you go to? You know, it was, it was impossible to, to actually find uh, that kind of support. So in the 1990s, uh, I found myself in Baltimore working largely with a coalition of churches and all the church organizations that were building or trying to build an anti-poverty initiatives in the city were trying to agitate for a living wage and, and, and all the rest of it. So I found myself as part of a living wage campaign in the 1990s, uh, which would not have been thinkable in, 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 say, 1970, but in 1970... Uh, other things were, 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 were thinkable, and yes, I remember there was a big um, uh, miners' strike out in Appalachia around the same time as uh, the miners' strike was going on here, and we supported lots of uh, things uh, out there. But again, politics is there, but politics is also contingent on, on, on states of consciousness and states of, uh, you know, of what it is that, as Marx calls it, mental conceptions of the world. What are people's dominant mental conceptions of the world? And I always remember going out to Appalachia and going to a miners' meeting outside. We're not allowed in, and there was a lot of noise in there, very agitated and everything, and people came out, and we started talking to this guy and said, what happened? Well, you know, we're going to really transform everything here. And we said, well, you're going to take on the companies. We're going to take on the companies. There, we're going to smash the company. We're going to do all this kind of stuff. And he said, well, yeah, the courts are against you. What are you going to do about that? Well, we're going to get the courts changed. We're going to get everything changed. And what about the governor of the state? No, everything was going to change. It was real revolutionary consciousness until you got to the point and you asked the question, well, can the federal government help? And, of course, the response of the miner was, oh, those communists in Washington... And you kind of go, what? <laughs> it was like, you know, hearing Obama being called a communist, you know. I mean, but the state of consciousness was very strange. It was on the place and on the ground. It was kind of incredibly radical. And then all of a sudden there's this kind of conceptual shift in which the anti-communism came in and, and, and the federal government, the distrust of the federal government, which is one of the major themes of American politics, came in. So you've got to deal with the contextual situation. And, and I, I, in that sense, many things that, that I, I engaged in, this comes back to one of your questions, uh, in retrospect, you see you were on the wrong side. That's the terrifying thing. Um, there were two issues which came up in the 1980s, for example. Uh, one of them was uh, suddenly this whole thing about flexible specialization came along and, and, and Puri and Sable and that started using Proudhon and talking about the new opportunities for flexible specialization and, 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 and I was one of the people who was kind of saying, hey, wait a minute, this flexible specialization plays into the hand of capital. And, what, and they were going around to the union saying, accept it, accept it, it's great for workers and everything because, you know, flexibility is a good idea, you know, etc., uh, etc. <laughs> Uh, and, and, but, but then I said, we should call it flexible accumulation, not flexible specialization. And, of course, it turns out that this was one of the major vehicles by which the working class movement was disempowered and crushed, uh, all in the name of Proudhon and, 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 and that. So that was the thing where they were on the wrong side and I was on the right side. Where I was on the wrong side was uh, uh, access to housing in the inner, city of, inner cities. Uh, one of the big issues was that, 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 that low-income low populations could not get access uh, to credit, could not get access to mortgage finance. So there was this big agitation going on on the Community Reinvestment Act to make sure uh, that uh, you opened the door to low-income populations so they could get free access to, to finance. Well, what did it do? Eventually it produced the subprime crisis. 
I was right on the wrong side, wrong side of that. I thought I was on the right side, and I was on the wrong side. We were picketing the banks and, and, and preventing the banks operating in Baltimore in order to, 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 to make sure that this Community Reinvestment Act went forward. Now, the right wing now claims that the main reason we had the crisis was the Community Reinvestment Act, which is nonsense. But nevertheless, this, was a, this is a situation where you think you're on the right side, and then you suddenly find you're on the wrong side. And then you've got to be prepared to kind of turn around and say, well, you know, our problem is who thinks that they can all have access to the American dream of being a home ownership in, in a situation where there's a great deal of, uh, of economics of dispossession taking place. So the politics of the thing are terribly important. I would summarize the political situation, and I travel a lot around the world right now, and, and, and it's like this. There's a tremendous amount of discontent, fantastic amount of discontent. There's lots and lots of initiatives uh, 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 trying to do something different, trying to create unalienated spaces in an alienating world trying to actually reconfigure things, everything from solidarity economies and so on, it's all there. But if you ask yourself, the, what's the mental conception here? It's certainly not anything like a Leninist political party. It's certainly it's not traditional left. It's, it's a different way of doing politics. And I would say this different way of politics at the ground level is... is, is I, if, if I had to describe it in a very simple terms, and you, you forgive me if I do this, but it's... It's a non-ideological cultural anarchism. It, 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 this, is, this is how most people are thinking. They don't want the state because they realize the state is a mess. Even in Latin America, we've seen you know, states being progressive for a little while and now look what's happening you know, to Venezuela, look what's happening even in, in, in Ecuador, look what's happening uh, in Bolivia. So, so if, that's the, if that's the political situation, then we have to, we have to grapple with it somehow. And, and, and we have to deal with, with the dominant mental conceptions that are existing in the world and see how to use them in a, in a particular way. There then comes a question of what are we going to use the politics for? Now, I'm radically anti-capitalist. And I'm anti-capitalist not because I've got some defect in my DNA or you know, because I was corrupted by the Socialist Workers' Party in 1972, or I, I was, you know, or, you know, or, or I, my grandmother, you know, I was a red diaper baby or something, you know, none of that. None of that. I, I started to come to, the, I, I mean, I didn't start reading Marx till I was 35 years old, so there's hope for you all yet. <laughs> and, and, and so, so you kind of, we've got to look at this situation and, and, and start to, 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 to use what, what, what we've got to, to explore new possibilities. And, but one of the things we find on this mistake, I mean, I'm looking at you know, Paul Mason's recent book, and this is a typical kind of thing that often happens. It's a technotopia that comes out of a particular set of things, but if you ask basic questions about it, you realize there's nothing in there about how to transform social relations between people. And that's foundational for any revolutionary transformation. We have to change the way we think, feel, act. But you can't do that just by sort of uh, saying, oh, I'm going to sort of play around with this information web stuff and it's all going to change my mind. It won't do it. And in fact, in the same way that flexible specialization gets you, got used to actually consolidate and even further centralize capitalist class power. A lot of this stuff is being talked about right now, about the information society, cognitive capitalism, all those kinds of things, which are not bad ideas, by the way, they're, but they're only part of the story. 
And if you only stick with the part of the story, the same thing's going to happen as happened with flexible specialization. It's going to be another, yet another vehicle whereby a capitalist class is going to consolidate even more of its wealth and power. And so from my standpoint, we have to understand some of that history and understand some of this dynamic uh, in order to get ourselves to the point where we really need, and this is the fundamental point for me, we really need to think about the alternative to capitalism. And there are very good reasons for that. And uh, Even if nobody's going to ask me a question about it, they're going to get an answer on it. Then. Very sure. All right, thank you, David. Um, a flexible specialization, this makes me think of, of, of a number of debates around the 1980s. I know Michael was very much uh, involved in anything about economic geography. So, Michael, I think you want to ask uh, something that's maybe a little bit more about economics and social science analysis. Yeah, continuing the uh, PhD orals here, that, uh, which you're very well succeeding at, um, Professor Harvey. Um, no, so seriously, I want, I want to ask you about Marxism in relationship to uh, developments in social science and sort of where you situate it. So I think we could say that Marxism is, of course, very much alive today in, in the world, but perhaps not as favored in the academy as uh, when, uh, say, Jane was talking about, uh, when you wrote Limits to Capital, Social Justice to the City, and so on. Um, that book, of course, cites Marxist economists who were pretty prominent in the academy at that time, and um, uh, that's less the case today than, than, than back then. Um, now, I think we could say that today, we sort of fast forward today and look at the state of social sciences in the academy, that um, there's certainly a part of mainstream economics and social science that is really quite unapologetic about the capitalist market system and in some of its more extreme versions, such as the Chicagonomics version, it's quite unapologetic about such things as growing inequality, the power of uh, the plutocracy, uh, and other things uh, uh, along those lines. I think, however, you, we can also see that if we look at the development of, say, mainstream economics since... Um, the late 1980s, mainstream economics in the classical liberal tradition, uh, that they have also mounted a really big effort to theorize and document such things as the new inequalities. There's a whole new field of labor economics that has really gone after these inequalities and that signaled them before they had political traction. The earliest really good texts actually date from the mid-1980s or market distortions, uh, oligopoly, monopoly, rent-earning groups, financial instability. There are old and new theories of that that come from mainstream economics, uh, developmentalist critiques of the world system and world inequalities, um, widening the arc. We could say that contemporary social science in, in cognate disciplines, it talks about power, violence, states, cultural integration, cultural conflict, um, we could say here in economic geography that we have powerful new models of uneven development coming out of a combination of new urban economics in the pure mainstream tradition plus new economic geography plus labor economics plus institutional economics and you add them all together and you can tell really powerful stories about why capitalism is hardwired in a sense 
to have uneven gradients of income and population and wealth and, and, and other things. So the question then is, why Marxism in all of that? In other words, why, how, would you, how would you tell us that Marxism is the way that we should situate all of that or argue those questions in Marxist terms as opposed to these other alternatives that have uh, emerged from uh, across the social science. So sort of asking you to reflect on Marxism within the sort of landscape of analytical social science today. Um, well, in the interest of uh, competition, my question would be, why not <laughs> Marxism? Why is it that almost no economics department teaches Marx? Why is it that even fringe departments have a very hard time teaching any Marx? So why is it that uh, Marx is not freely discussed in economics departments? And when it is discussed, it's usually because uh, there's something mathematically interesting that, uh, I mean, in the economics department of Johns Hopkins uh, actually found a few interesting things mathematically about Marx's reproduction schemas and thought that Morishima's presentation of Marx was actually mathematically very significant. And because it was mathematically significant, they didn't actually care about the content. <laughs> They just can't get, like, 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 like the math. Um, so there's that kind of uh, angle, first of all. And I, I, I'm not one of those who kind of says, you know, that all uh, you know, bourgeois economics is bullshit. I mean, I do tend to think that way. But, I, <laughs> but and of course, I don't say it. So you didn't hear that, you know. But. But, uh, but, but uh, no, I think there are many things going on there which are terribly important. I mean, if you are interested in certain dynamics of the market and you're looking at things like, you know, the skewedness that comes out of uh, asymmetries of information or something like that, there's actually some very interesting things being said there about the market phenomena. But, of course, Marx is doing something very different. First off, Marx is not an equilibrium theorist. Uh, Marx is actually constantly looking at the fact that there's instability by definition. And most economists at some point or other have kind of got this idea, well, you know, it'll all, you know, the efficient market hypothesis brings you to some sort of equilibrium or something of that kind. Marx is not like that at all. He says, left to itself, it's going to bring you to a crisis, a contradiction, which is why a contradiction is so important in Marx, why, why, why this happens. But the other thing that goes on about it, and this comes back to the other point I'm making, is it depends a little bit on the nature of, of, of the questions that, that, that get asked. Okay, here's, here's a significant fact which is produced by the U.S. Geological Survey. That between 2011 and 2013, that is in three years, uh, China consumed 6,500 million tons of cement. Okay, 6,500 million tons of cement. Between 1900 and 1999, the United States consumed... 4,500 million tons of cement. That is, China in three years consumed 50% more cement than in the United States in a whole century. Now, this is an interesting fact. And you say, what the hell is going on? What is it? 
that's going on. Why are they consuming all of this cement? What is, what, what is this about? And what are the consequences of, drawing, of pouring cement everywhere? And, and you lived in the United States, you know perfectly well, we, 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 we poured a lot of cement in the United States, so it's not as if, it's not as if you know, you're, you're, you're comparing you know, this China with Guatemala. This is, this is, this is phenomenal. And actually, of course, one of the things that's happened is the massive urbanization project and infrastructure development project in China since 2008 has been the major way in which they've absorbed uh, surplus labor. That uh, the collapse of the export industries of China uh, in uh, 2008 because of the collapse of the, of the consumer market in the United States, it seems that, although the figures are very difficult to trust, but probably around 30 million jobs were lost in China in that period. By the end of the year, the IMF, ILO did a big survey and they found that the actual net job loss in China was 3 million, which means that the Chinese created in one year 27 million jobs, which is almost as phenomenal as the figure on cement. But all those people were pouring cement. And, 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 the, the, and it wasn't only cement. And, of course, what are the Chinese doing? They're consuming half of the world's steel, 60% of the world's copper. So if you're any one of these countries and you're supplying China with any of these things, you're doing very well. Okay. So this is... This is but, then, but then you kind of go, well, what's, what's the dynamic here? Why, is, why, 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 why this? And the answer has a lot to do... This is the only way that capital survived during that period. It's to pour cement everywhere. And then you kind of go, does this make sense? And, of course, China's now got into some difficulty. You know, it's run out of places to pour cement, it seems. <laughs> or something's going on, and so what happens is, all of a sudden, all those countries, those BRICs that were doing so well, you know, Brazil and, uh, and, and, and Chile and all the rest of it, and Australia and so on, all of, all of a sudden they're in recession. So all of this is going on. There's a dynamic. There's a tale to be told here, which is about the overaccumulation of capital and surplus capital and labor, which has to be absorbed in order to keep stability within the global system of, of capital accumulation. These are the kinds of insights that come out of the Marxist thing. Now, I've seen this before on smaller scales. This is what I saw in Haussmann's Paris. This is what Haussmann did in order to, you know, but it was a small-scale thing, Okay. This is what Robert Moses did in the 1940s. And the, even the Federal Reserve Bank of, of San Francisco came up and said, you know, when we look back, we see that the United States typically got out of depressions by building houses and filling them with things, which is, of course, suburbanization. And that's what was the basis of a lot of the big boom that went on. Why? Why? But why? You've got to ask the question, why? Social sciences these days are extremely good at describing how. When I started out in the social sciences, and when Jane got into it too, I hope the question was why. And what economics is very bad at doing is asking why instead of how. It tells you how, and it's quite good sometimes. When you need to know how, yeah, okay, I'll go off and read one of those studies. It's very good. Although there's some astonishing lacuna in it. When I went out and said, okay, give me some good studies that show how housing construction dynamics actually relates to macroeconomic instability. I couldn't find any studies of that sort. 
because, you know, urban economics is a trivial area in economics, as I think you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, the big guns have better things to do, you know, than, 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 than play around with, you know, houses and silly things like that. But 25% of Chinese growth over, since 2008 has been simply in housing construction. The other, another 25% has been on infrastructure construction, which is all this pouring of cement and God knows what. That's 50% of the economy. Almost all of the growth has actually been taken up that way. And when you run out of places to go with it, then all of a sudden, the whole economy starts to crumble down. Now, I'm trying to give you a simple sort of case, and I can go on and do it much more in a complicated way. But the kind of story that comes out of looking at the history of urbanization through Marxist lenses and saying a lot of this has always been about the absorption of overaccumulating capital through urbanization. And it explains some other things. Why is it right now? Actually, the, a lot of this building, this is an astonishing feature of, of, of cities. A lot of this building is about building housing and accommodations for people to invest in, not to live in. You know? Why? Why? And in New York City, we've got a fantastic building boom going on. And most of those places are empty. There's a crisis of affordable housing. Globally, there's a crisis of affordable housing. And at the same time, in Dubai, they're building all this ridiculous stuff. And, and you know, in New York and London's doing the same thing. You have a crisis of affordable housing. And, you've got, and who's buying all this stuff? Interestingly enough, the Chinese are lending money to the United States so they can then personally go and actually invest in a house uh, or an apartment in, on Park Avenue somewhere and not live in it. So one of the things we do in, in New York is to go around and look at all of those high-rise condominiums after 8 o'clock at night and see how many lights are on. And the answer is hardly any. So we're building, we're building, and we're building cities, and we're building cities for, for people to invest in, not for, not for people to live in. This is an astonishing bias. And you go again, I kind of say, well, where in the economics profession do you find this sort of stuff really laid out in, 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 a, in a fairly simple kind of way? And, and, and even somebody like Krugman would say, that, you know, the problem with economics is they got so mesmerized by having mathematical equations and everything has to be measured. And the problem is, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist in economics. And most of the interesting things are immeasurable. And though we should be looking at those. And that is actually one of the reasons why I still stick with the Marxian theory of value, because the value theory is immeasurable but objective. And I think that this has a certain power to it, an incredible power. And I was sort of interested in Paul Mason actually got back and said, okay, the, this, this is a basis, which is a much more profound basis. So, yeah, where does Marx stand in relation to the social sciences? Um, I think uh, uh, very repressed. Uh, I te te was teaching Marx in, in, in New York City when I got there in 2001. I was the only person in the whole of academia who was teaching a class, classes on Marx. That's why the, the classes got so big. I had 100 people, you know. And we were, there we were uh, you know, in a place like this with the Empire State building up there, you know. And I'm teaching Marx's capital. I think, wow, I've really arrived. The revolution started, you know. <laughs> but, 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 uh, but this is... A, this is but, you know, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I, I agree that, that there's some very important things being done in, in economics right now, and I, I, don't, I don't deny that. But I think that there should be a very, very significant space for Marxist thinking. 
And, and, and regular, regular Marxist economists never, ever refer to my work, ever. I think that's the case. In fact, they don't refer to anybody's work other than each other's, you know. But <laughs> that's, that's, again, a big problem of the hermetic nature of that. And, and I, so I think that the, 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 this is, you know, we need, we need to open academia. And when I say we've got to open doors, there's a, there's a lot of doors that need to be opened in academia. In fact, I've been living through this period where, where, where more and more doors have been closed. Hmm. More and more of them being closed. Partly through all of the nonsense about RAEs and blah, 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 and, you know, uh, etc. But it's been closed. And it's very difficult to keep them open. And it's only kind of... Uh, uh, ancient old dudes like me who still go on about this sort of stuff. Uh, well, it's very difficult. Well, okay. Well, let's try and open it up. So much for economics. <laughs> um, let's try and open some doors finally, and then we'll have, you know, um, a couple of questions from the audience. Um, um, you know, I know you're in anthropology and geography at the same time uh, lately, um, and that you speak to people in lots of other disciplines, but I guess you're particularly associated with geography, and you're probably the best-known geographer inside and outside the academy since Alexander von Humboldt in the early 19th century. That's a very long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I remember him, actually. You! <laughs> he was charming and very famous. <laughs> How do you feel about the future of geography as a discipline and as a way of understanding the world as we move ever forward on in the 21st century? And what advice? There's lots of young geographers in here, I think, looking around. I can certainly see some from the LSE, and I'll bet you there's quite a few from other institutions in London and elsewhere. What advice would you give to young geographers embarking on an academic career and beginning to do research at this time? Uh. Subversion. <laughs> Again, you have to do politics in terms of uh, you know, where you're at and what's possible and all the rest of it. And if you're in a disciplinary situation where you know, conventions are of one sort, then... You probably have to conform a little bit, but you should always uh, keep uh, one foot uh, out on the radical fringe. And something else here which I think is incredibly important. Uh, you never know where good ideas can come from. Uh, there's this notion that if you get in a, in a tunnel, that, that somehow or other the tunnel vision will bring you. I've always found that, uh, you know, you could, could go to uh, all kinds of seminars with completely different topics and suddenly something would just flick. You know, you, you get epiphanies all over the place. But you have to expose yourself uh, to that. And, and try to always connect uh, to... You know, William Blake had this thing about, you know, the, 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 the truth and reality lie in a grain of sand. That is, uh, you can take a very minute question, and I was often found myself doing this in Baltimore, a very minute question, and then start to look at all of the forces that surround it and, and, and the conceptual apparatus you needed to unpack how those forces were impinging upon this question. 
Um, and again, it's, it's about, about opening up uh, a very specific study to some, some broader set of, 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 of arguments and looking for the significance of those broader arguments. I mean, when I started off uh, looking at, uh, say, what happened in Second Empire Paris, and I'm looking at, uh, you know, the unemployment conditions in 1848 in Paris and what was going on when Louis Bonaparte came to power and, you know, declared empire. And, and he clearly understood, and he had read Saint-Simon also, and so he clearly understood unless he got labor and capital fully employed very shortly, he wouldn't remain emperor very long. And so therefore the mission was get it fully employed and that's bringing Hausmann there to do what he, what, what he did. It was, was, only, was only part of the, the, the strategy. It was a big part of it. But that realization that, that actually the only way out of that crisis and the only way that, that, that could, could work was to actually rebuild the city that, that realization stuck with me. And then I kind of started looking. I said, well, my God, that's what happened in, you know, in the United States. That's what's been happening in China. And by the way, China's in a recession right now. Guess what they are thinking of doing? They want to build a new city which houses 130 million people in one city in space about the size of Kentucky. That's the whole population of Britain and, and France in one city to be centered on Beijing. Now, that's going to take a lot of cement. <laughs> that's the first thing. And they've got surplus cement producing capacity. Guess what else they're doing? And there was a very interactive kind of map on this. They want to rebuild the Silk Road from Shanghai to Istanbul. That's going to take a lot of cement. <laughs> There's all this stuff about transcontinental connections within Latin America right now, from Peru to... Sao Paulo. They've actually got contracts now with the Peruvian government. Not a cement. Building dams, building infrastructures, huge dam projects in Ecuador and Patagonia. Uh, there was a map, interactive map the other day came out of Chinese foreign investments in 2012 versus 2000. The map is just spread like this. This is the spatial fix, as I call it, really visually in motion. But it's a spatial fix which is using up China's surplus productive capacity and cement and steel and all the rest of it in this way. And it's also using labor because even though there's plenty of labor in these places they go to, they take the labor with them, their own labor with them. They're doing it in East Africa. A lot of Africa is being pulled into this huge, huge kind of investment stream. So the point here is, again, that, that what, 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 what you're looking at when, when you're looking at a micro-event is a situatedness in which you start to see some of the things that are going on. Why this huge hydroelectric project in Ecuador? Why is it that 55% of foreign investment in Ecuador now comes from China? Why is it that when the oil prices crashed, Ecuador immediately ran to the Chinese to get... Uh, uh, huge loans, and in return for which they basically gave access uh, to the Chinese companies to mine whatever they liked in South Ecuador, which is a very uh, difficult kind of terrain uh, and, and uh, a result of which uh, quite a few indigenous leaders, three indigenous leaders, have been found dead 
uh, in that area in about the last uh, year or more. So this is, a, this, is, this is the kind of thing. So if you're looking at something like that, you've got to situate it always against this background. So, so the geographer's art is, is actually to look at this geographically. That the collapse of the, of the subprime market in the United States generated huge unemployment in China, response, big urbanization response, Chile booms, urbanization response runs out of place, Chile collapses. I mean, in other words, you're just looking at some, a world in motion. The uneven geographical development of it is very, very significant. And in fact, you start to look at the way in which the crisis spread. I mean, it was, it was amazing moments. You turn up the press and you suddenly say, oh, God, Dubai world went under. Oh, fancy that. And then, then somewhere else. It's Greece. Then it's somewhere else. The crisis tendencies are being moved around, but also the crisis solutions are being moved around. And it's that dynamic which you find yourself in. And I went to a, a kind of a conference in urban sociologists. A lot of... A lot of Detailed things. Everybody seemed to be doing anti-gentrification work everywhere around the world. <laughs> and yeah, I can see it. It's a good study, you know, anti-gentrification. But you know they're going to lose. And you know, and you know what the outcome is likely to be. And and and, and then you kind of go, well, you know. And I, and I find myself asking the question, yeah, okay, you've got all these, you know, got 30-year anti-gentrification studies. You put them all together, and you have a volume of anti. Yeah, okay, another brick in the wall of anti-gentrification studies. But where's the anti-capitalism? Where's, where's, where's the dynamic in which you kind of say, look, this stuff is pouring cement at this rate of time, and you see it also, of course, with the Beijing stuff right now. This sort of thing is, 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 is crazy. It's insane. And, and capital has reached this point of insanity, total insanity, where it's compounding rates of growth and it's exponential rates of growth of something like, you know, okay, what they did in Paris, well, it's okay, you know, you got away with it. And okay, Robert Moses got away with it. This stuff that's going on right now is at a scale and a, and, a, and a huge thing which is absolutely overwhelming. And I think we have to understand that and locate what you're doing against the background of these macro forces. And again, you get a better account of these, it seems to me, by looking through the Marx lens than you do... Uh, by getting the detailed studies that, that, that come out. I mean, I'm not saying all of the World Bank studies are crazy, but some of them are. Uh, the one they did on geography was completely ridiculous. It, it advertised, it said, uh, oh, every country should, should actually develop secondary mortgage markets and then things will become much more stable. This, they published it at the very moment when the subprime mortgage market was blowing up all over the place. <laughs> and you kind of go, you know, again, this is this equilibrium thinking, you know, which actually doesn't contemplate the fact that all of this is contradictory. All of this is kind of being squelched in, and it's, all of it has some explosive consequences. Oh, I can see what's going to happen later. We're all going to have, be having dreams and nightmares about cement. <laughs> Uh, after all this is, uh, is it, over, it, it, it's, it's, it's good. It, it, it's cor it correlates, by the way, with the rise of the mafia. <laughs> um, thank you, David. I, I think we should take uh, a few questions. We don't have a great deal of time, I'm afraid, because we do have to finish at, at, at um, eight. Um, can I just ask, we have people wandering around with microphones. Can I ask you to say very briefly who you are, so we know who you are, and please, 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 please keep your question concise, short, um, a question. 
Uh, so we can, you know, share and get some more uh, uh, issues uh, uh, in. Um, we'll start with you. Yes. Uh, thank you. It's Nick Jeffrey. I, I take students here out into the real world, Dawkins and all on field trips. I've, uh, you mentioned uh, about economics departments ha having an avoidance of uh, Marxist studies. Uh, presumably you're talking about the Western world. You might be talking also about China because you talked a lot about what's happening in China. And uh, I have here in my hand, actually, David, uh, an invitation for you to accompany your ex-student Richard Kirby and my ex-student Richard to Nanjing University to lecture on Marxists. Approaches. I, I don't know if you're going to be. Yeah, able I've to actually, I've, 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 I've actually accepted. That's quite the question. Sort of I've question. actually accepted that invitation, so I'll be there in uh, next June. So yes, what, what, right. what do Thank we you, know Nick. about? Uh, can about, we um, yeah. can we have a, uh, a question, please? <laughs> Thank you for your talk today. My name is Fawaz Salah. I'm a student of Development Studies at SOAS. My question is. Um, how would you suggest that developing countries grow and raise the standard of, of uh, living for their, for their population without falling into the capitalist trap and at the same time maintain their, their, their integrity and not fall into the hegemony of another country? I know it's a broad question, but maybe you could share some of your thoughts on it. Thank you. Should we take several questions? Yes, let's take a couple more. Uh, right up at the back there. And then here. Um, um, Jamel, I'm um, uh, undergrad at the school. Um, I think uh, you mentioned like how uh, radical politics is quite illuminating. Like it offers an explanatory framework for things where like other smaller studies might be frustrating. And I was wondering what you would suggest on how like radical ideas that to those who sort of adhere to them seem so like uh, powerful and explanatory. How you um, would expand them, or like how you would get other uh, people like to to be exposed to them, and like what you thought was the best way of of expanding radical politics, and whether that was something that would happen in universities, or it's something that, in, in Marxist terms, is something that occurs naturally, like within uh, working class um, environments. And uh, here. Um, hello, my name is Aisha. I'm a development studies student at Oxford, and my question has to do with um, actually your contribution to Marxist theory, um, specifically accumulation by dispossession, this, and the stuff that's in the new imperialism. And all this discussion about China and cement seems to fall into that theoretical construct. So I guess my question is, and this is what I've been grappling with, is um, you make a distinction between accumulation by dispossession, which is bringing primitive, Marx's primitive accumulation back into sort of modern capitali contemporary capitalism. But how does that differ from expanded reproduction? Because there's been critiques of your work, for instance, that like temporarily unemployed workers or you know, people um, in rural areas in the developing world are not necessarily, what's happening there is not accumulation by dispossession, but what's happening there is just expanded reproduction. So what exactly is, how would you, like, if, I've been thinking about it, I've been reading about it for two weeks, it would be lovely to hear it from your mouth. Um, what exactly is the difference between accumulation by dispossession and expanded reproduction in contemporary capitalism? Wow. Good question. Do you want to go? I think you should try and answer those. When, when, when I go, um, uh, on, 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 the last, on the last point, um, I, th I think uh, 
Primitive accumulation, as I understood it, was um, largely about formation of a wage labor force and also the assemblage of uh, capital via uh, legal and illegal means through closure of the commons and all those sorts of things. It's very well known. Uh, the sort of thing I'm thinking about in terms of uh, uh, accumulation by dispossession is the fact that uh, uh, African-American populations and Hispanic populations of the United States lost something like two-thirds of their asset wealth in the housing crash of 2007-2008. Uh, and uh, white populations lost about 28% of their asset wealth. Where did that asset wealth go? Well, it's interesting if you count up the money, it turns out that uh, actually if you just take the African-American population, the loss of asset wealth in around 2008 was equivalent roughly to the Wall Street bonuses. Now, I can't say that that money went from there to there, but when there's this redistribution of wealth uh, that goes on, in a crisis situation in which Wall Street rewards itself with a huge uh, set of bonuses at the same time as there's this tremendous loss of asset wealth. So this is what I mean by accumulation, by, uh, by dispossession. There are many other things like what happens to pension funds, uh, the losses which are, which are being accumulated there, uh, losses which are occurring through... Uh, the way in which uh, urban environments, uh, you know, people get displaced and, uh, from urban environments uh, in order to make way for mega projects like new stadiums and, you know, all of the, uh, the kinds of urban investments which are, which are going on these days. So there's a whole range of phenomena that are going on in contemporary society in which, in effect, large segments of the population are being robbed of their rights, being robbed of their assets, being robbed of their... Uh, of their access to, to, to all, sorts of, all sorts of things. And this seemed to me rather different uh, from the kind of the exploitation of, of living labor in the production process. And actually, uh, I could go into it, but I'll get cut off because there's a whole big question of the relationship between Volume 1 and Volume 2 of Capital, Volume 1 being about production, Volume 2 being about realization. And the politics of realization is just as important as the politics of of, of production. For instance, in the politics of realization, you're talking about the way in which the credit card companies will put all sorts of charges on your credit card. The telephone companies will do the same sorts of things. Uh, rising rents and housing extractions. In other words, a lot of extraction of wealth is going on these days at the point of realization of value, not at the point of production of value. And I think this is a very significant difference. So I tend to use it that way and talk about uh, accumulation by dispossession as being very much entrenched uh, in, in relationship to the politics of realization. And I just go one step further and say that if you look at uh, the outbreaks of discontent in the world and you look at something like the Gezi process in Turkey or what happened in Brazil in 2003, it was all about the politics of realization. It was not about the politics of production. And so, so I think that we're seeing more and more unrest building around, resentments around, and, and it's a politics of anti-accumulation by dispossession. Now, to be sure, there are certain areas where somebody will say, well, this isn't a, you know, okay, they're overlapping categories, and they flow into each other, and that a politics of dispossession can become part of the expanded reproduction if the people who are thrown out of their housing uh, go into, you know, find they have to, 
uh, go into the job market and do something different. There are all sorts of ways in which there can be fungible. Marx always was very good about that. There are no fixed categories in Marx which are firmly defined. It depends very much on the use. So the one thing runs into uh, the other. The, the second question has a lot to do with how to communicate. Well, well, it's up to you. I mean, you, you, I, want, I, I, mean I, I, I try to do it by riding up a storm as much as I can. I do it by doing the videos. I've done it whichever way. Um, I do it uh, by, by working when I'm, when I'm traveling around. If I can get to a community group somewhere, I talk with a community organization. I was doing that in Uruguay. I was doing that in Chile. I've done that all kinds of places. So I do it wherever I can. Um, but I think the point here is, again, that, that I don't think there's a fixed uh, kind of format for it. I think there's, there's, there's just got to be a mass movement of some kind. And actually, you find a lot of this already going on, which is not covered. It's dispersed, it's fragmented, but there's a lot of... of, of and I'm, 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 I'm really quite amazed when I get to some uh, you know, public housing project in, in Montevideo... Uh, which is a kind of bit of a catastrophe, and I find that actually people are, are, are a bit familiar with what I, what I work on and, and, and want to talk about it. And, 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 and you kind of go, wow, this is, this is, this is, this is amazing. <laughs> and and if, if we, can, we can set ourselves up to do those kinds of things uh, in, in, a, in an open and discussion way, and people need to be listened to and they kind of feel... Uh, involved, so there's lots of lots of, of, of ways, and uh, and I, I think uh, the pedagogy of it is. I've always been impressed with you know Paulo Freire's pedagogy of the oppressed. I think there's very various pedagogic ways in which which we can we can experiment. This is a period in which there's no fixed answers, but there's and, and many people get very frustrated by it. But I I always say this is a big opportunity. It's a big opportunity to go explore. Uh, how, how to get people involved in solidarity economies, in exchange relations, in barter structures, in, in, in alternative money systems and so on. A lot of which probably won't work, but, 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 but okay, it moves. And so it's a movement of some kind. And so the movement has to, has to come out of uh, some sort of grassroots uh, positioning of that kind, which has some kind of guiding principles involved with it. And I think the, the, one of the things that we should be doing in universities is in relationship to the social movements we encounter, we should be trying to develop some guiding principles as to what, you know, where you might be able to go with this, how you might connect a housing project with a, a, a sort of a building of a, a democratic decision-making structures, uh, for example, and uh, uh, the way in which, uh, say, some of the accounts that are coming out of Rojava uh, in northern Syria, or the way in which uh, things were done by the, by the Zapatistas, you know, are there ways uh, like this, which is not to say that they have all the answers, but there are many things of this sort which need to be, uh, need to be sought after. Uh, and that brings me to the, the final question, developing, uh, I, 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 again, I don't want to get into a situation of sort of saying we don't want any growth anywhere. In some instances, it seems to me that it's very important that some limited growth occur. There was plenty of places in the world where we could do with some degrowth uh, and get rid of some of the more ridiculous forms of conspicuous consumption. I mean, I look, I mean, you just look at, at the urbanization structures that are in the Gulf states. 
And there's a region of the world which is crying out for alternative ways of, 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 of building social relations that don't drive you into, you know, sort of radical Islam and all the rest of it. And what do they do? They build a hotel in the middle of the desert with a ski slope inside of it. And you kind of go, this is, this is absolutely fucking stupid. <laughs> absolutely fucking stupid. And... And, and this, this, this is the sort of thing that, that totally exercises me. And, 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 and you kind of go, and, and a lot of the building that's going on in New York is, is insane. I kind of say to the graduate students, you know, we should try and get one of those buildings and go up to the top of it and put a big banner up there saying, this is insane. Because it is. And actually, the, 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 you know, my anti-capitalism is very sane compared to that stuff. And that's, that's what pro-capitalism is really about these days. That's what it's doing. And that's what it's doing to people on the ground. Half the people in New York City are trying to get by on less than $30,000 uh, a year. How can you find a place to live with less than $30,000 a year? You can't. You can't. And this is the crisis of our times. And, and we're not looking at it. We're not looking at it and we're not dealing with it. We're putting all of this marble and ooh, kinds of stuff into these condominiums which are out for the ultra-rich, who are not going to live in them, except maybe for one week a year or something like that. I mean, this is, this is like I say, well, yeah, it's insane. <laughs> but how do, how do countries do it? There are, there, are, there are a lot of, it seems to me, alternative ways of thinking about uh, trying to develop uh, alternative structures on, on the ground, democratic structures. I mean, one of the things that has been interesting about, I've been trying to follow, I tried to get in there, but the, the, the Turkish government wouldn't let me go into Rojava. But I think that this, this kind of notion of a demo, you know, confederal socialist model of, 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 of democratic uh, governance uh, and, and a rebuilding of the economy. Now, I don't know how the rebuilding is taking place, but I would argue that uh, there, are, there are possibilities in a situation of this kind uh, not to get into uh, the, the accumulation of capital, that maybe you could even set up an alternative monetary structure. Uh, I, I really fancy all of those monetary structures that, that oxidize the money, which uh, actually means you can't accumulate. So that money is no longer a form of saving, it's just simply a form of circulation. And, and if we can find things of this sort, which existed in the 1930s, by the way, so there's innovative things in which uh, the possibility of developing greater food sovereignty and, and the like is, is, is there. There are many proposals uh, on the ground which I think are actually uh, stimulating and, and interesting, and I've, and I've come across a few of them. The difficulty is to start to think about how this all integrates into uh, a more macroeconomic uh, uh, system, and unfortunately... While I have some sympathies with the anarchists, there's no way in which you can do this without having something like a state uh, which is going to set up a governing structure, uh, which is going to deal with the infrastructures and deal with the interrelations and, 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 and do something of that kind. And actually, if you look at the structures in Rojava, which is kind of more uh, based upon Murray Bookchin's ideas, if you look at that, you find actually they have kind of a, a regional uh, assemblies as well as local assemblies and there's a hierarchical structures of that kind. So there are, there are ways to go but again, um, you know this is a situation where we really don't know clearly what the answers might look like and we've got to really find something that's a different way of doing politics and a different way of running the economy. Well uh, we have very limited time but perhaps someone can devise very cleverly a question that David can answer in three or four 
sentences, if we treat this in the spirit of... That's always hard to do. Yes, healthy uh, 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 debate. What about this person here? One from down here. Uh, hi, my name is Sydney Ballou, and I'm a master's student uh, here at the Department of Geography and Environment, Environmental Studies at uh, the LSE. Thanks for coming. I, I had two quick questions. Um, maybe this will sum it up a little. Um, one is um, we mentioned anti-gentrification um, kind of taking place uh, when we talk about uh, geographical studies or, or urban geographies. Um, and I know Neil Smith, he writes a lot about how you have this shift from the 80s. People were talking about displacement and the violence um, uh, of gentrification, whereas now everybody's kind of navel-gazing navel and thinking about um, cafes and just getting pissed off about cafes everywhere. Um, so, one, how do you repoliticize people um, and repoliticize academics in the field? And then, two, um, I had a question about uh, this sort of duality. Um, Dr. Um, and Professor Wells had mentioned um, learning in the 1980s in this sort of exciting field emerging, but I also think of the 1980s, I think of, is it Charlie Sheen in Wall, Wall Street, the first one? I mean, just that you have the rise of neoliberalism at the same time, and I find that, um, you know, in my urban economics classes, if you believe everything, you would think that New York is the worst place in the 1970s, but I feel like Africa Mbata would say no. Um, and I also think, I mean, coming from Chicago, yeah, this is also an exciting time. So what's the question? Then? So my question is... We have two minutes. We, you have these kind of dual aspects what's going on. So and how should, we, how should we address that? What should we do? And how should we think about this time? Thanks. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to reply like this, but, you know, you're, you're an intelligent person. You could figure out. <laughs> I'm, 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 just an, uh, you know, I'm just an old duffer, you know, so you go ahead and, and uh, you know, and put youth at the head of the multitude is what we have to do. And I think that, that yes... Um, uh, you can read about uh, the mistakes that were made and, and all the rest of it. Uh, there's a lot of nostalgia, by the way, amongst people for the 1970s New York. In fact, one of the uh, joking ways in which I think we can solve the affordable housing problem in New York is to bring back the crime wave. <laughs> and get everybody running around the streets, you know, with knives and this kind of thing. And then... Uh, <laughs> And then, and then, uh, and then, uh, like it was down in Soho, uh, you could get a flat for nothing. And in fact, people were living, living, living in these places for nothing. I mean, I, this is all joking, but I'm, my point is that, uh, you know, the, the the restoration of New York, and 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 now, you see, it'll be presented in all the architectural magazines as a great triumph of you know urban regeneration of New York compared to the 1970s. But if you talk to people, what was going on in the 1970s? The cultural innovation that was going on uh, in all of those empty spaces was fantastic and people people kind of can't who, who lived through that kind of say this is the whole place has been destroyed uh, you know and 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 so you know the, be, be careful about what what you read in terms of what's a success story and what's not it's a success story from certain perspectives uh, and in fact in, in many urban settings we have a situation which is actually very common under capitalism the particular places do very well, while the people living in it do very badly. Uh, New York is a, is a classic example. New York City has done very well. 
but um, the people, a lot of the people, well, a good majority of the people are doing very badly. And, uh, and, uh, and I think that uh, if you use that criteria, you would kind of say there's some really, really, really big changes that have to occur in the way in which uh, the city is managed. And it's, of course, very difficult to do it because we had, uh, you know, uh, three administrations of uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, who uh, is progressive on some issues, on climate change and gun control and all those kinds of things, very progressive. Um, and you want to hear my prediction, it is if, if Trump gets the Republican nomination, uh, Wall Street will run Bloomberg as an independent for president. And he may make it because 30% will go to, the vote will go to Trump, 30% will go to Hillary, and there's 40% in the middle who'd love to have Michael Bloomberg. I, All right. That's, that's, my, that's, my, that's my prediction. Right, well, I think we need to stop now. We've, we, we're out of time. Thank you all very much for coming along. I'd obviously also like to, um, I'd obviously also like to thank our panelists, Jane Wills and Michael Storper, uh, for coming and And I think we should all give one more round of applause for David for uh, getting his honorary. <laughs>